Good morning, America. This is Mark, your host, and it's the Daily Answer. And let's go back in time. My great-grandfather on my dad's side was born in 1824 in Kentucky. So three generations takes me back to around the time when Thomas Jefferson dies. And Jefferson dies on July 4th, 1826. And his name was Willis Dunnigan. This name was also given to my grandfather and my dad. And so I am Mark Willis Dunnigan. And as far as I can tell, I'm the last Willis Dunnigan. My great-grandfather had come out to California during the gold rush and made good money in the process, not mining for gold, but rather he was a blacksmith and bought scrap metal from wrecked ships turned them into picks and shovels to sell to the miners. He also had a brother by the name of Thomas. And eventually they headed back east by ship, found themselves on a ship quarantined because of yellow fever near New Orleans, jumped ship, and eventually he made his way back to Oregon. His brother stayed back east and fought in the Civil War, the Battle of Atlanta, March to the Sea, and so on and then afterwards came to Oregon and settled in Scotts Mills. I remember there was a distant relative still alive from that side of the family when I was little, whom I might, I might have met once or twice. His name was Manila, born around 1899. He lived in Scotts Mills, and Scotts Mills is just a small, small little hamlet. And many people there were like loggers. And my mom and dad, though, would often talk about him. If I understand this side of the family correctly, then my great-grandfather's brother, Thomas, had a son by the name of Thomas, who then had Manila. There is some question if my great-grandfather had a wife back east when he left. Uh, Family history, according to my aunt who lived in Redmond, said said that he had been married and had a child and a wife who refused to come to Oregon with him. For doing, during those years, there were many women who became or became known as California widows. The land of California and the gold rush took their husbands away. Their husband would leave for the gold country and simply never return. All I know is that when he comes to Oregon before the Civil War, he marries a woman by the name of Catherine who I am told was a distant relative of Cotton Mather, a Puritan clergyman known for his scientific studies, literary work, and role in the Salem witch trials. My great-grandfather set up a blacksmith shop at what is known as Four Corners on the road from Silverton to Malala. He then purchased a thousand acres on the Abiqua for $2,500. A good deal of his property had been part of the Samuel Markham and C. Miller donation land claims. And here he raised a family, most of them all dead long before I was born. My grandfather was the youngest of his children. And so when my grandfather was eight years old, he had a brother who was 47. The family names at this time include Hacker, Israel, Nellie, Crescent, Viola, Nora, Bennett, and Willis. 
If you are interested, my great-grandfather kept a number of diaries, which are now part of the rare book collection at the University of Oregon. A few years back, I took some time and went down there and I read them. They do not contain a lot of personal information. Rather, he recorded the weather, how much butter or eggs he sold, trips to Portland, business dealings, people in town who were sick, estates that he helped settle, children who needed a home because their parents had died, and so on. My aunt would talk about how many pairs of shoes he wore out because he would often walk the 20 miles to Salem and back. He traded livestock, caught salmon in the Abiquois both for personal use and resale, contracted home building, moving, built fireplaces, farmed, operated sawmills, and had a considerable loan business. As early as 1868, he was raising cane berries, and that would be like Marion berries and Logan berries and boysenberries and strawberries. He was one of the first hop growers in the Willamette Valley, and he purchased many apple, cherry, and other fruit trees. My younger brother called him a Renaissance man. He would die in 1897, and his wife would live until 1926, which means that my dad had contact with his grandmother for some 11 years after his birth. Contact with a woman who had been married to a man born before Thomas Jefferson dies. So I personally knew and interacted with a man who knew a woman who was married to a man born before Thomas Jefferson passed from this earth. The one highlight of reading his diaries was that on the front of was on the front of one of the diaries was a passage from the book of Ecclesiastes. When I was little, my grandmother was still alive and she owned what was left of that 1,000 acres. I think there was about 200 acres left on the Abiquois. I remember going out to the old homestead with my dad where he had grown up without electricity or running water and the little smokehouse where he would smoke turkeys and ham and that's the way they would preserve their meat besides canning it. My grandmother had moved into town years previous and settled in a little white house on 2nd Street in Silverton. So that's when she that's where she lived when I was little. And we would go out to the old homestead and he would clean up things around the farm like blackberry bushes that were starting to grow over different sheds. On one Sunday afternoon, he had a burn pile going and I don't know, I, 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 found, I found some potatoes somewhere and we placed them in the hot coals and, they, and then ate them. Eventually, my grandmother would sell the place, a sale that my mom attempted to stop undermine and sabotage numerous times because much of the 200 acres had timber on it and she understood the value of it. She was business savvy. She understood the long range importance of the land and it simply killed her when it exited the family. Oh, it was a sore topic of conversation for decades, decades after that. What made it even more of a bitter pill to swallow is that whatever proceeds my dad received from a sale, because it was basically split between him and my aunt, 
the bulk of the taxes or capital gains fell on him. Mom said that he debated hotly with the IRS, telling them he wasn't going to pay. And they told him that, well, they could simply take his house if that happened. So he did. And I remember, I remember as a small child, at that time they had a, a round table in the living room. Oh, and all sorts of papers were stacked on the dining room table. And my dad was at, just absolutely frustrated because I think the taxes he had to pay was basically about the same price as his inheritance. When, when my dad would take myself and my younger brother out there, he out to the property, out to the Abiqua, which he often did often on a Sunday afternoon, he would tell us various stories. And one common story was that a famous battle between the local Indians and the early settlers had taken place out there. And he would point to a specific field that when he was a young boy, he found many arrowheads in. In fact, the Battle of the Abiqua happened around 1846. And then there was a specific rock overlooking the river from which two Indian braves had jumped in the attempt to save their lives. And as a young boy, my dad would roam miles and miles of this territory with a rifle, some shells, a bedroll, and a gunny sack of food. And until he died, that was his element. He actually told my older brother that one time as a young boy, he was roaming and hunting just out through the woods, you know, and he found a man who had been hanged in the woods and the wild hogs of the forest had nibbled at the dead man's feet. Boy, that'll wake you up. I am told that the name Abiquama means something like hazelnut. And this river orig originates near what is called Lookout Mountain. And I know there's a lot of Lookout Mountains across the United States. But this one would be in the foothills of the Cascades. And it flows about 20, and the Abiquois flows about 29 miles from its source until it merges with the Pudding River, which kind of looks like pudding. 20 miles later, the pudding connects with the Molalla then enters the Willamette one mile further, then the Columbia, and of course then it's out to the, the Pacific. Now between the farm and the road, or excuse me, between the farm and the river, there was a road. And often my dad would take us here on like a hot August afternoon or maybe four o'clock in um uh, on a, on a summer day. And th there was a couple pole offs that were located near, near the bridge. He would park and then follow a little trail or access point down to the river. Now and then we would stumble upon, well, back then we called them hobos swimming naked in the river. Yep. On one occasion, I found a beer can, an empty one. And there were some little minnows swimming in a pool. And the beer can had a small opening on top when they had the, the pop tops. And so I tried to scoop up that minnow. And my dad laughed. 
and commented on what a fruitless exercise that was going to be until, until I came to him and showed him the middle and the bottom of the can. He could not believe it. And probably one of the few times in his life that he was absolutely speechless. And that was one of the rare times in life that I really ever beat my dad at anything. Fond memories. Someone said the thoughts of childhood are long, long thoughts. That is, what your parents, some place that your parents took you, what they said to you when you were six or eight years old, you'll be thinking about that when you're 80 years old. And my thought is that often the thoughts of childhood can be something that help you as you grow older. I know the two things that help me are scripture, what the scriptures say, and the prayer to God and God's people. And the other thing that keeps me, helps me keep my head on straight, are the wonderful memories of childhood. One of the greatest gifts that you can give your kids, and let me qualify this. I'm not talking about a childhood where there's no responsibility or there's no work or chores. And I'm not talking about removing all the hard things from a child's childhood. I'm simply talking about a childhood where they grow up with a mom and dad that is both there. And the mom and dad don't have to tell them they love them every day. And the mom and dad don't, mom and dad don't have to buy them stuff. But just the fact that you grew up in a family that mom and dad were there. They were there. And there was food on the table. And the house was clean. And no, they didn't praise you for things that you didn't need to be praised for. But you were given a stable home life. And maybe most importantly, most importantly that both your mom and dad, instead of trying to be your buddy, they were your parent. And they were two people that you could respect. Give your kids a good childhood. Set an example before your children of an adult that they can respect. And be an example of someone who has beat Satan and that is not under the, under the domination of a sin. That's a thing that a dad can really help his son that way, especially is, hey, I'm not addicted to this. I'm not addicted to porn and I'm not addicted to drugs and et cetera. You don't have to be either. Set, set the example of a great spiritual light so that long after you're gone, if your son is struggling with something, they can think back and say, hey, my dad overcame that. My dad could resist that. And if he could resist that, so can I. The Daily Answer. You've been listening to it. Mark Dunnigan, your host. Until next time, we may see you in the funny papers or we may see you down off a pullout in Silverton, down on the Abiqua, down a little gravel path, kind of steep gravel path that you're going to have to watch your step or maybe hold to, on to a... Um, a tree root here and there to get down. But may I'll see you there on a warm August afternoon, maybe about four o'clock. 
Until next time, we'll see you later. <laughs>